Today on This Week Health. Just because I've addressed COVID and done a reasonable job of it does not mean I've fixed interoperability. When we talk about this, I try to boil it down to three core principles, that of access, that of experience, and that of outcomes. And infusing across that is good, solid, robust information that's available at the point of care for aggregate analytics, et cetera, and to improve how patients are treated and how they understand and make choices around that treatment. Welcome to This Week Health Community. This is Town Hall, a show hosted by leaders on the front lines with interviews of people making things happen in healthcare with technology. My name is Bill Russell, the creator of This Week Health, a set of channels designed to amplify great thinking to propel healthcare forward. We want to thank our show sponsors, Olive, Rubric, Trellix, Hillrom, Medigate, and F5 in partnership with Sirius Healthcare for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Now, on to our show. Welcome, everyone. My name is Brett Oliver, and I am a family physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for Baptist Health in Kentucky and Southern Indiana. And I'm happy and honored to be part of This Week in Health IT and the new show, Town Hall, as one of the moderators. I'm really looking forward to hopefully amplifying some of the conversations in our community with some very bright and insightful people. And to that end, I am tickled to death to have as my first guest, Andy Truscott. Andy is a global healthcare leader for Accenture and has a broad experience in that role. And I knew we'd have a great conversation. And so Andy just finished his second term on the Federal Health IT Advisory Committee, where I first met him and served as the co-chair for the Information Blocking Task Force. Andy is also the board chair for HL7. Andy, great to have you on the show. Thank you, Brett. Great to be with you today. Wonderful. Well, let's just jump right in. One of the things I really wanted to know from you is what's what's top of mind? What trends are you seeing in 2022 in the healthcare IT space that maybe are opportunities, maybe some are challenges, but things that you see that the average healthcare organization should be addressing or looking at? Thanks, Brett. It's a great question. And it's one that there is no simple, straightforward answer. Well, I think the pandemic came at a time where healthcare was changing. There was a great understanding that health organizations were needing to create unparalleled human experiences that had easy, equitable access and superior outcomes for their patients that what the one hearts and minds of humans and, and built trust. And that was just kind of getting into full flow when we had the what we now call the pandemic, capital T, capital P. But it was coronavirus and it was an emergence of something which had been predicted by some people previously that pandemics will come and will go but it was one that I think took the world by surprise with the speed and the severity and you know we saw the world react in ways that we none of us have seen or very few of us have seen in our lifetimes and and with that you know it became a cessation we stopped dead in our tracks from a lot of the things we were working on so organizations were working through how to create better human experiences. In the United States, we were using a piece of legislation like the 21st Century Cures to drive that level of access to information and standardization of information to enable better experiences for patients. And that kind of all of a sudden was up. Like, we have to go and look at COVID and we have to enable both the delivery of care for non-COVID activities to continue where it's essential but also that delivery of care where possible to take place in you know, more virtual channels. 
So we saw a shifting from how to create better experiences to a how do I use technology to have an experience and how can I manage to keep engaging with my patients? How can I keep providing them good quality care? Meanwhile, I've got a whole slew of patients appearing who have got this thing which we don't really know that much about. And, and very, very quickly, we all became armchair epidemiologists, but the, the information about what this thing was was still very indeterminate in places. And there was lots and lots of proper learning individuals with apparently conflicting advice and guidance, et cetera. And, and that caused confusion. And I think underlying a lot of what we saw through the pandemic was a realization that whilst we had previously been talking about unparalleled human experiences and creating great stuff for our patients, we realized that actually there's a backbone of information and information and communication, which just wasn't quite there. And we've seen that globally with the ability to both um, detect and report COVID quote unquote outbreaks as different variants have taken hold, there's always that lag of data. And then when you do have the data, what does it really mean? And those kinds of surveillance networks, which we'd all assumed were in place, and they were in place and are in place for communicable disease where, you know, smaller scales, as soon as you got something like coronavirus COVID-19 came along, they were really put to the test. And I think we found them wanting in many places. And there's that recognition and realization over the last few months, right on this day, that we need to be investing and mitigating, which brings us very neatly back to, like I said, the 21st century cures and the things we were doing in the US, the things that within HL7 we've been doing globally around data standardization and fast healthcare interoperable resources fire. That actually, rather than saying this is going to be a great thing to take this wonderful new stuff for patients, is actually. We just need to fix some of the stuff we thought was fixed already. That's fair. That's fair. Are you seeing, because you're right, we stopped as healthcare organizations, all these projects we had, and everything was focused on COVID back in early 2020. As the organizations you work with are going back through this queue that had built up on you know, regular projects, are those looked at differently now? Do you see that? Is it a different filter, like making sure this backbone of information that maybe we assumed was there and, and wasn't? Is that part of now a standardized process as you're going through to make sure that that happens? Or are you seeing a lot of, whew, okay, now let's move on and go back and doesn't, we're not even considering what we just went through? It's varied. It really is varied. Some organizations absolutely get it. They're like, okay, we know there's gaps here. Let's go and work it out. Some organizations, um, more of the, oh, we're done with COVID now. Let's just business as usual. Not every organization is the same, so it's difficult to put like a brush across everything. But I, I think reality is that we, we as a society were found lacking and we were found with gaps and we do need to fill them. And actually, we will do a better job of providing patient care in the future if we do take a deep breath and fill them. That's fair. That's fair. So I, I would see that as a threat to an organization that does not learn from that, the ones that if we want to painted broad strokes, they didn't learn anything. They see COVID as just an outbreak that we're done with, we didn't learn from. That's obviously a threat to that organization moving forward because the information sharing that you're gonna need for any, anything else is gonna be imperative. What other threats do you see out there in the health IT space for organizations that they're not looking at? I would think 
obvious ones would be maybe cybersecurity, but are there some other pieces out there, maybe in broad categories that you see as threats? Um, well, let's just, let's just rewind back to the COVID statements. Just because I've addressed COVID and done a reasonable job of it does not mean I've fixed interoperability and information sharing. The two are, are not the same thing. They have implications upon each other. There are some level of symbiosis between them, but they're not the same thing. And organizations, when we talk about this, I try to boil it down to three core principles, that of access, that of experience, and that of outcomes. And infusing across that is good, solid, robust information that's available at the point of care for aggregate analytics, et cetera, and to improve how patients are, are treated and how they understand and make choices around that treatment. And, and when we're talking about, like I said, before the beginning of the pandemic, where organizations were skating towards this unparalleled human experience, okay, that's all around access experience and outcomes and equitability, et cetera. And we saw manifestations of this through the pandemic. So that some of that stuff is still pretty broken and needs to be addressed. And we might have addressed it for COVID-19, but there's a whole world of access, experience and outcomes that he's doing that's way wider than that. You mentioned cybersecurity. Yeah, cybersecurity is top of mind for pretty much every C-suite that I know, both in the US and globally. But there are some particular nuances of concern inside that. So ransomware is something which every now and then we see hitting the media headlines. But the reality is that ransomware happens far more than any of us care to admit happens. Most organizations don't want to publicize it for obvious reasons, but ransomware does happen. And the purpose of ransomware is that of disruption. It's not of attack. So, you know, many of the traditional tenets around why cybersecurity issues, you know, access to information, withholding information, et cetera, that those are slightly to one side. Ransomware is all about disruption. You know, we've invested massively and in approaches to actually combat ransomware and work. All the main electronic health records providers have, you know, pretty good um, and strong solutions in this regard. But there's always something and there is always a weak spot inside anyone's own posture. And so ransomware, I, I see as a, as a very big issue. And that, so as a subset of cybersecurity, something which you know, to, to marry together interoperability and cybersecurity with the interoperability mandates here in the US through 21st century cures and similar expectations globally, the, the need to actually understand a patient's desires. Now, they may have expressed those as consents, but they may have expressed them as wishes. We have... We talk about consent in a very structured way. We consent for particular purposes. Sometimes it's simply a patient saying, I want these people to see, might be able to see my information if they're providing me care, but not these, or that group, but not this group. Or everybody can see my information, and if they're providing me care. Or if you're not providing me care, it has to be for research and it has to be pseudonymized or something like that. And that's where it touches upon cybersecurity and access control. And I think there is a need and I see this in pockets already, but there's a need for a broader understanding and sharing of what an individual's small c consents are. Yeah. And that's a gap because as organizations, we go and collect this stuff routinely. We understand what patients capital C consented to. We understand generally what a patient wishes and we have a policy that tells a patient what they want. Now, with giving 
the ability to share information about a patient's care, clinical and financial broadly, with the patient's instructions, for want of a better term, around what's going to happen to that information, and giving the patients that power, we kind of need to record that. And what better way of giving um, patients more consistent experience for care uh, and receiving care is actually by routinely sharing those decisions by a patient. So we're not constantly asking patients for the same information. Right. And, and that just seems to, to make sense. Yeah, we're not, I don't feel like we're close to that granularity yet, to your no. point. Either, it's either yes or no, everybody or nobody. And then when you throw in, say, a, you know, a behavioral health note or something that's got legislation around it, that just throws the whole results routing scheme into, into a tizzy. Uh, yeah, but, but those, those decisions we made about what takes primacy there, those decisions we made by policy masters. But for 99% of the population, it should be very straightforward. There's always going to be exceptions, you're right, uh, and very important exceptions that we need to be cognizant of. But the, you know, generally, for the majority of the population, is actually, this is what I want. Tell everybody who might be involved in my care, that's what I want. Yeah, makes sense. Well, maybe, maybe in a parallel to that, as board chair of HL7, I'd like to get your take on something. Until I got into health IT, you know, I had heard of HL7. I knew it had something to do with interfaces and still probably are pretty um, naive in all of the things that you guys are involved with. But I would love to understand for HL7, what's top of mind and how does it relate to the, the frontline clinician or the, the frontline organization taking care of patients? Sure. So yeah, to, to many people, HL7 is this kind of slightly esoteric organization that's very, very technical. And, um, and yeah, its history has been you know, defining and constructing the lifeblood standards for health IT systems to communicate with each other. And its mission is fundamentally focused upon improving patient care and improving patient outcomes globally. And I think what people, some people realize, and many people don't, is that if you're working in a hospital or a, a primary care clinic or any kind of clinical setting anywhere in the world, it's highly likely that the systems you use, use HL7. Okay, so when you send a, a lab order off to be fulfilled, okay, that's going to be HL7 that communicates between you know, your computer, computerized physician order system on your EMR through to the lab system. And then when it gets processed and the result comes back, that's going to be HL7 in that result as well. But you send a prescription off to be filled. That's going to be HL7 as well. And other standards, but HL7 is normally there as well. When you have a radiology um, exam and you've got an image in front of you, that's a DICOM format, which is the image and an HL7 report. So, and that's the structure for it. So HL7 infuses everything we do in every clinical system. So, but many clinicians don't realize that. Should clinicians realize that? Actually, I don't think so. I think understanding there is this standardization is good to know because it means you can trust the systems. Clinicians don't need necessarily to understand the details. There are some clinicians such as yourself who really fully understand these things and understand how important they are and how it's important to have clinicians involved as you're defining those standards. So the standards meet the clinical need. And over time, HL7 has advanced those standards. So there's different versions of standards over time. Version two, version three, CDA. And now we have this thing called FIRE, which FIRE has captured the imagination globally because it's much more accessible as a standard than some of the earlier ones were, which were, did require a certain level of clinical understanding to, 
to work with them. And so fire really has, as I said, caught the imagination. And for clinicians, I think what we get with fire is an understanding that we can trust the data that's presented to us by our systems. And with fire, we actually can also communicate the provenance of that data and where it's come from so that you can actually make an informed decision. Nothing is trying to stop clinicians from making the best possible decision at the point in time that they've got a patient in front of them, whether they're physically in front of them or whether they're virtually in front of them, based upon the information you have. And you're always going to treat upon presenting symptoms, but having fuller information where you can have it, understanding the context of that information, it is frightfully important and can talk about much more than I can. And the H L seven standards allow us to do that. Now, recently, and I publicly stood up at the, the H L seven workgroup meeting late last month and said this, my entire focus as the chair is a modernization of H L seven. So preserving all the great stuff that we do, but also making sure that we lean in on the implementation of those standards. Mm. So it's far more than just defining these standards. It's actually making sure that they can be realistically implemented and supporting vendors, clinical organizations in those implementations. And uh, we've actually created an entire implementation division within HR7 to help with that and to drive that. So HR7 is about standards and the implementation of those standards. That's fantastic. It, it really brought another question to mind because you're right that the implementation of these things, it, it can't be, if there's an AI algorithm that uses an HL7 interface that I want to use for me and my organization, it's likely a six month project at minimum. If it's a new vendor, all you know, all the different processes you go through, are you seeing whether from your HL7 viewpoint or just at, from Accenture and all the different organizations you come in contact with more of a greater looking for a platform approach for this to where you can do a little bit more plug and play for an overused uh, phrase, but where I can, if someone comes to me with a new algorithm and says, Brad, I think this could really help in the um, care of your pneumonia patients or your diabetic patients. The, the amount of due diligence I have to do because of the investment of time and resources to get that live in our system and using with patients is tremendous. There has to be a way that we can, I don't even know what the correct term is, platformatize. I just made one up right there where I can have a platform that I've already vetted. I vet once, I vet annually, whatever it might be. I'm connected there and I can plug Andy's new diabetic algorithm in there, try it out for three months, see where my patients land. And if the data holds true for them, it helps with some of this equity and some of the, the fact that a lot of our data pools come from the coasts in the United States and not where I practice and things like that. I'm just curious to your thoughts on just sort of this platform approach and if if, you, if there's other solutions to that from a technical perspective to get around it. So I'm ignoring the argument between is it AI or is it complex rule processing? Fair okay. enough. Fair well, enough. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Okay. But um, so I, I kind of ask you the question, what would you trust? I would trust something that I could try. Let's say it's with, let's say Andy Truscott's got a brand new platform, your company. And I connected to that. I vetted it. My relationship is with you and your company. Yeah. That's where the trust comes in. And then you have a basic level of vetting that you do with any company that comes with their machine learning algorithm, their AI, whatever it might be. And I, I still want to do my own vetting. But from a technical perspective, I don't have a new project. You do. You figured that out. And so 
my vetting from a clinical perspective can actually be done, whether it's in the background or live in production with my own patients. Does that make sense? Yeah, I understand what you're saying, but why would you, why would you want to vet something with production patients when you're trying to provide them the best care you can? This is still untrusted. You, you haven't proven it yet. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying, I would run it on production patients, but in the background. I, it wouldn't be okay. presented to clinicians. You, you have enough time to run things in parallel. Correct. It's certainly better than doing a six to nine month project only to find out this isn't, this isn't working. I would like to have yeah. three months where I could easily connect. There really wasn't much of an IT project, determine that, yeah, this is great or this is not great because it's with my own data. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and I understand that point. The major question in my mind is actually providers who are able to run these things in parallel, okay? Because there is a time overhead from doing it, and that, and that always causes me concern because we don't, you know, providers have more than enough things to do their day without experimenting with the, the stuff that I've come oh, no. up with. No, no, but, no, yeah. But something, something we're doing, we are doing right now is with one of the platforms we have inside Accenture, our health and human insights indicators and models, we're actually embedded inside it. So when you're cutting and slicing patient data, it sh shows you a diabetes score and a diabetes risk score, okay? Whether or not you ask for it, it's just sitting there in the corner yeah. and you can choose to pay attention just like you would any other clinical decision support. And I think that's probably the, a good approach for getting adoption of some of these new quote unquote AI type algorithms is actually there are existing clinical decision support channels out there. Okay? There are existing ways by which we can display risk information around patients for on whatever dimension. Oh no, and we are trying to develop new ones as well around especially things like social determinants of health, but also around other clinical risk, et cetera, as new models come out. So augmenting that, but making it more accessible. And there's some great examples from around the world in that kind of risk data is made more accessible. If, I go, if you go and look at, say, Norway. So Norway actually uses, and I call it a rose, but it's an it's a ideogram that's um, based around the EMR symbol. And each leg of the symbol actually means something different. And Norwegian clinicians are like, literally from the first day they walk into medical school are trained with this. If it's on paper, it's printed in the top right-hand corner of the medical record. And the systems reflect that too. Wow. So it's a, an ideogram is the right term. It's that illustrative diagram that you just instinctively know what the arms mean and when they're a certain colour or shading or, or hatching. And this is an indicator that you can then go and drill into. And I think it's trying to reduce the level of overhead upon clinical practice of adopting these things. And you know, if a clinician wants to ignore it, they can ignore it. It has to be in the, in the existing workflow or you have to show them a workflow that's then more efficient in the end. When I talk to startup companies that want me to go just one click over to our dashboard, I'm like yeah. you lost me, you lost me. That's it, it just, it, nope, not, it just, it sounds like a very simple thing until you actually are on the other end doing it. Actually, like another one of your podcasts, you should go and hook up with a Norwegian and actually get them to talk you through this. Because I think yeah. you're quite Yeah, if you've got a connection, I'd love to learn about it. That's, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, I'd like to switch gears. Just last question, we're running out of time. But because of your role, I'm curious from a leadership perspective, I kind of want to understand sort of a leadership question. What are the challenges 
And do you have any tips or strategies in building a team in this new hybrid or maybe totally virtual for some of your team members world? Because I think you've been living in that much longer than a lot of us, just with your travel and all that kind of stuff that you have to do. Any, any thoughts in that realm? Yeah, it's been, it's been curious, for sure. The nature of my day has shifted fundamentally because, and I speak, I think, similar to many, many people in a similar situation to me as consultants uh, who get to engage with one or many clients. But my days have shifted from being several hours spent engaging with a client in particular context to actually a series of small vignettes and snapshots throughout the day. And typically, it would not be uncommon for me to have you know, 16, 30-minute meetings in the space of eight hours, which is incredible. And it's a very different style of working. And in some respects, it's much more akin to clinical practice, where you're seeing snapshots of patients, bang, on, bang, on, bang. <laughs> So I actually wonder when there's something to learn that I could do with learning from yourself. And it's but something I've, I've picked up is that um, being very, very clear as you start an engagement, what your expectations are by the end of that engagement. So, and I found, you know, as I, we all know that that's good practice to, to start a meeting saying, this is what I'm going to get out from it. And, and you did at the beginning of this session. I'm going to talk to Andy and this is the kind of the stuff I want to talk about. We don't do it routinely in our longer meetings. And, and I actually wonder, when, when a patient comes in, you know, and, you, and it's part of a long series of treatments you're giving to the patient, do you know what that outcome is going to be? I definitely go into the exam room with a concept. Now, it, it can get blown up pretty quickly. But yeah, exactly. I, I need to make sure they understand these three things. I've already looked at some lab work, perhaps that has been done before, and I want to change this. Yep. So yeah, I, I term it pre-charting, you know, whether it's actually actually getting stuff into the chart, but I'm reviewing things and kind of in my head, yeah, you're right, or else it's it's terrible. The only time it really verbalizes when I would have a patient with a list as long as my arm, and I'm like, wow, we, we only have 15 minutes. What are the two most important things? And really, that's what we need to focus on. You're right. We don't do that with meetings. But you should. We should. Yeah, and I, I, I've very consciously started doing it. I might be not not verbalize it, but I'm actually really clear. This is what I want out of this meeting. But I am very clear, and but and I do verbalize in the closing throes of a meeting. This is where we've got to. These are the results coming out of this meeting. This is how we're going to measure that we're being successful. And these are the next steps. And I think it's too easy for engagements to come to that's to finish. Okay. Every engagement needs to have a closing point. So you understand actually that this is, this is where it goes now. And, if, and, and be very deliberate. If this is, we're not going to meet again on this subject, we're done, we've worked it out, then just, let's just say that and vocalise it. Yeah. Okay, and then expectations are well understood. In a virtual world, it's a lot, lot trickier to pick up the nonverbal cues that we used to pick up routinely inside meeting rooms. Now, how many times have you sat there in a meeting and you, you felt someone stiffen two people down? There's a sense of something. Or you, you can see someone with that twinkle in their eye. When you're in a, a flat screen, you don't see that. So I've, I've learned, and I've certainly seen my colleagues learn, to be much more vocal and to actually just check and seek to confirm and be very deliberate. So, And I think that's a kind of a lesson for all of us because... I think everybody knew about teleconferencing 
and then most people did phone conferences, you know, across you know, any walk of life before the pandemic. But things shifted. I started talking to my parents through a FaceTime session. Now, I started talking to my colleagues all the time through a team session. And the other thing, and this is, this is probably a personal belief, is if you have the opportunity to see somebody, do it. Because it's good for the engagement and it's certainly good for the person. Because we, as a species, we are a social species. Amen. And you know, how many um, tales have we heard about people over the last two and a half years becoming increasingly isolated, about people who just felt caught up in their own home, can't leave, there's lockdowns going on, or they're scared to leave, and have felt increasingly isolated and we should not be allowing that to happen. We have the tools to stop that from happening. So when you're doing a virtual session, turn your camera on. Show that we can be truly human. I agree. The intentionality that you bring out is, is so important. It's challenging. It's easy to sit back on a Zoom call with 25 other people that you don't have anything to present and zone out, try to multitask, which doesn't work. And then, then those cues, those subtle cues that maybe you can pick up in two dimensions, well, forget that, you know, that those are out, out the window. So I, I appreciate that. Um, on that point, if your camera's not turned on and you're on mute, why are you there? If you're just there to listen, then start off on a meeting by saying, hey, I'm just here to listen. I'm going to have a camera turned off, so I'm not interfering. I'm going to have a mute, but I am listening. Otherwise, are you engaged or are you not engaged? That's a great point. Sometimes I don't know why someone's on a meeting. Their camera's not on. They don't contribute verbally, at least. What's there? You just feel obligated or no, I wanted to listen because I want these three points. Well, I want to make sure you get those three points then if that's why you're there to listen, right? Exactly. Exactly. This is awesome. I appreciate it. No problems at all. Good to see you again. Yeah. Thanks, Andy. I appreciate it very much. Take care. I love this show. I love hearing from people on the front lines. I love hearing from these leaders. And we want to thank our hosts who continue to support the community by developing this great content. We also want to thank our show sponsors, Olive, Rubric, Trellix, Hillrom, Medigate, and F5 in partnership with Sirius Healthcare for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. If you want to support the show, let someone know about our shows. They all start with This Week Health, and you can find them wherever you listen to podcasts. Keynote, Town Hall, Newsroom, and Academy. Check them out today, and thanks for listening. That's all for now.